Welcome to the Unapologetically Fueled podcast, where we talk nutrition, identity, performance, and the psychology behind it all. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. I have a very special guest today. I have Kayla Devine. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, is it to be Yeah, Kayla Devine. Um, I am super excited to chat with her about everything that she's doing through both social media and her career and um, just everything. So Kayla, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, um, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Um, so yeah, my name is Kayla and I am currently living in the Seattle area. Um, I am a graduate student right now, so I'll be finishing up my master's of social work next summer. Um, so that's coming very quickly. Um, yeah, but outside of school, I work, uh, in eating disorder treatment and I've been doing that for about a year and a half now. Um, so I've been in two different clinics, so that's been a cool experience. Um, and then I also am an athletic coach. So I've coached in a high school setting, and then I do some private coaching now while I'm in school. Um, beyond that, I am a very proud dog mom. I have to mention that part. <laughs> or it's essential. <laughs> yes, of course. Everyone needs to know. Um, I have a beautiful German shepherd, um, proud COVID puppy. So um, had to give her a shout out for sure. And yeah, those are kind of the big pieces. Oh, that's awesome. I am so happy you included the dog part in there because <laughs> like my dog is like my whole world and yeah. I do not introduce myself without talking about my dog. So. Oh, absolutely. It's a necessity. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you. It sounds like you have a lot going on um, and just like you're really passionate about what you do. So that's super cool. Um, great. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about your story, kind of like how you got into this field, both like social work, maybe a coach, um, working with athletes with eating disorders, just like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I have a lot of like different angles for it, but they're so intertwined. Um, yeah, the best place to start is probably just thinking about my interest in both coaching and the mental health field, um, have been rooted in my own story. Um, that's kind of how it started. So when I came into college, I started majoring in psych. Um, and then I was also coaching during my undergrad and those were definitely like, I had my own story and I wanted to kind of get on the other side of it. Um, and then as I went through college and then now in grad school, um, kind of paired that education with my own story. So it's just gotten, um, like a, my passion has gone deeper, I guess. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then I would say the biggest shift or development in my interest in the field has been getting that clinical experience. Um, so both through my school program and also just working in jobs, um, in the field, being able to like actually connect with people is, um, kind of my biggest motivator right now and what keeps me interested in going. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I initially got into the field of both sport and eating disorder treatment. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I think it's so powerful to like use your story to help others. And I think that there's like so many people who are like, oh, I don't, I have the story, I have this history and I don't want to share. I don't want to help people. I don't want people to know what I went through, but really like some of the best care that we can both give and receive is from people who know like where we've been and like struggles. And so I just, and like, it makes my heart so happy that you're using your story to help others. And like, um, 
yeah because I just think it's that's kind of I mean everything I believe that when things happen like sure they may not happen for a reason but like after they happen like it works together for good and we can use our stories to help others so yeah that's awesome oh yeah definitely (laughs) yeah so um can you share like about your personal story too a little bit like with your history of underfeeling and being an athlete yeah um so thinking about like the athlete part of it, I have grown up always doing some sort of sport. Um, so I did a lot of like little league stuff as a kid. I was in, you know, some soccer teams. I did gymnastics for a while, kind of bounced around different sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also grew up in a pretty active family. So we were always camping, hiking, you know, doing whatever. Mm-hmm. And then started really getting into sports more competitively as a high schooler. So I started running my freshman year um, and then ran competitively through high school and continued running into my college years, um, more like recreational. Mm-hmm. And then, so thinking about how the underfueling fit into that, um, you know, when we chatted about setting this all up, I was kind of trying to think back, like, when did that start? And like, how did it start for me? Um, and I can think back and remember kind of like this hyper awareness of my body coming up like around sixth grade ish, which I think is honestly probably a pretty common story. Um, just given the stressors of entering the middle school years. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I remember that kind of starting and then there was definitely a shift as I got more into competitive sports in high school of how, um, that hyper awareness around my body and sports came together. Um, so that kind of developed throughout high school. And then I would say got a little bit more intense towards the end of my high school years and into early college, um, where I kind of saw a shift from, um, maybe what I would have personally considered, um, more just like disordered thinking and disordered eating to like eating disorder behaviors. Right. Um, thinking about how like is a spectrum of things. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so there was that shift late high school into college. And then, um, in college is when I sought out, um, some support through that and got treatment. Um, and yeah, so now I'm, uh, I still consider myself to be in recovery, but I'm in a pretty stable spot. So it feels good. And, um, yeah, it's fun to think back and see how far I've come now, but yeah. 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 No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, it's definitely a very, yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's definitely a very common to see, you know, all of that happen around middle school, high school, because it is a very, I mean, it's a hard time because you're constantly being evaluated, not only by, you know, your peers and everything in that age, but also if you're an athlete, it's just 10 times worse, especially if you're in um, some of those more competitive sports. And um, a lot of people who have eating disorders there, I mean, we tend to be more competitive in general and, you know, like high achieving. And so yep. <laughs> it kind of correlates with each other. We're very, you know, type A. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, absolutely. So what would you say is like the biggest thing that helped you in recovery? Yeah. Um, that's such a tough question. Um, I honestly think the biggest thing is just the supports that I had. Um, when I think about the times where my eating disorder was at its worst and where I was kind of like struggling, um, you know, the most significantly, at least from my perception of it, um, it was pretty isolating and I didn't have a lot of supports around me. And then 
thinking about like moving through recovery, it was really the people that made a difference. So, um, I, you know, really look up to the supports that I had in terms of my treatment team. Um, and then also just my family and friends. Um, my husband has been one of my biggest supports, so I definitely have to give him a shout out. (laughs) Um, yeah, but I think, I think it's just the connection and the people that made the biggest difference. Um, the work is super challenging and, you know, there's moments where like, you could say like this treatment modality or this like experience made a difference, but the more consistent, um, thing that made it possible is definitely the people. Yeah, absolutely. I totally echo all of that. Like it was definitely, um, when I was going through probably the hardest part of recovery, I was like, it's the people it is. Um, that is really what kept me going because exactly there are different treatments, but I mean, one treatment may not work one day, but it might work well the other day. It's so individualized, but it's like the people that remain consistent in your life are the most impactful. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, going back, it's cool to see that you're that person for probably so many athletes right now too, just like (laughs) clients. So yeah, it's a very surreal experience to be able to walk alongside other people. Um, and then have those moments where you're like, wow, like just to think about who those people were for me. And then to think about like, even being a little bit of that person for somebody else. It's, um, it's incredible for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you touch a little bit more on like how that, how I guess it feels to be working with people who have eating disorders and, um, you have your own story as well. Yeah. Um, that's definitely been a super interesting journey for me. Um, so I knew I wanted to work in eating disorders Mm -hmm. probably like halfway through college is when it kind of, um, became more, like sure to me. And that was really through my coaching high school athletes. Um, I was having a lot of athletes come up with different disordered eating concerns and body image issues. Um, and that was really interesting for me because I was in a position where, um, I was a coach, so I wasn't a mental health professional. Right. So I had to hold those boundaries of knowing what my scope of practice was. Um, but also I had this personal experience. Right. So I was like, I want to offer more. What can I offer? Like, where does this all fit in? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of where it started. And then when I decided to actually formally work in eating disorders, um, in terms of like a treatment center setting, um, that's when I realized that my own story was going to impact my work, whether I wanted it to or not. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I think a lot of people are like, well, I'll just like compartmentalize and put it aside. Um, and I'm definitely, I love compartmentalizing very good at it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. but but yeah, like it didn't, it didn't work out very well. Um, because my story came up every day I went to work in some capacity. So it was really about trying to figure out, um, how to use my story in a positive way, in a responsible way. Um, Yeah. So that, that kind of plays into what it's like, right. To be a provider of any sort for clients with eating disorders, having that lived experience. Um, I think it can look different depending on, you know, your comfort level with, um, self-disclosure and all that stuff. Um, but for me, I think the biggest thing is it gives me a sense of understanding and compassion that I'm really thankful for. Um, 
you know, when a client is telling you a story, you might not be able to completely relate to every aspect of it. Um, but I oftentimes find that, you know, you are able to really like feel what they're going through, which as a provider can be really hard because, you know, you're feeling that pain with them. Um, and also it's an incredible way to build that relationship with them, um, and build that trust. So I think it's really been helpful in that way. Um, and I don't think it would be completely authentic of me not to mention the fact that it is really hard, right? You have those moments, um, where your, um, your own story comes up and you have to figure out how to, take care of yourself, set the boundaries that you need to make sure that you're able to maintain your own recovery so that you can help others. Um, so it's really, really intricate dance for sure. Trying to use your lived experience and also, um, continue to take care of yourself while doing so. Yeah, no, that is such a delicate balance. You put that into like great, great wording there because it truly is all about figuring out you know, self-disclosure, will it be beneficial to the client? Will it be beneficial to you? And it's, um, it really is a tricky thing to think about as clinicians. Like we always talk about, um, and like talking about giving care to others, whether we're in like a clinical class or whatever it is, um, it's about self-disclosure and how some clinicians are like, no, 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 never self-disclose. But then at the same time, you got to think about like, is that really best for the client? Because it really does like, I mean, then there's the other branch. Let me state that first. That's like yeah. <laughs> definitely self-disclose everything you can because mm-hmm. it helps them realize that you're a human and you're not just this robot trying to help them. Um, yeah. And I do really think that it is a good balance of knowing when to do so. And it's like, it can be one of the most impactful things to a client. And um, it's just, it really is beautiful. And it does, um, establish that therapeutic relationship and like develop rapport. And I mean, countless like treatments and countless amounts of research has shown that like one of the best predictors of success in therapy is that relationship. And so it definitely, yeah, that's definitely hard to like navigate, you know, like, Oh, do I tell this person Mm -hmm. story? Do I not like it's, and also protect your own recovery because it is tricky um, for sure. But yeah, it's, it is a beautiful thing. And then there's also times when maybe it's like, if this person might get triggered by a certain aspect of our stories, then it's hard to know. And when they ask questions, so yeah. 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 It's it's definitely an interesting area. And, um, for me too, I, so I had the experience of when I was, um, Mm -hmm. going through a more like structured treatment, um, Mm -hmm. my providers did use self-disclosure. So that's also, um, kind of something I think that impacts my bias towards, um, self-disclosure, of course, done so responsibly. Right. Um, so yeah, I just think about like how big of an impact that had on me. Um, and then I've also worked in different settings where, um, you know, in one clinic I was in, we weren't supposed to self-disclose. Um, so that was interesting for me because I didn't really think prior to that job, like how I personally felt about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was interesting because I found myself a lot of times wanting to, and finding like ways I thought I could do that responsibly and in a way that would support the client. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so having that 
role. And then now the job that I'm in um, does support self-disclosure if done effectively. And yeah. it's just, it's been an interesting place to navigate as um, I'm kind of early in my career and in school and all that, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's definitely like, that's hard when they like, don't allow self-disclosure because at some points it's like, you're telling them, you're like, oh, I understand. Like, I know, I promise you it gets better. <laughs> They're like, how do you know? And you're like, uh, yeah. I just, I'm really well qualified. They're like, no, 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 no. That's not gonna, <laughs> that's exactly. not gonna advise well. So like, also what you brought yeah. about compassion. It's like, and your personal experience um, with like your providers, that's so true. Like yeah. some of the most impactful providers that I had were like, guess what? I had an eating disorder too. And I was like, what? I was like, so you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah. oh, I can trust you <laughs> type thing. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's not to say that like people who want to work with people with eating disorders have to have an eating disorder first like you can be effective mm-hmm. therapist but I do think there's that like special bond that special form of rapport that happens when you do share that lived experience so yeah yeah I definitely agree I think um yeah like you said you don't have to have that experience um but when I think about you know different therapists or if we're talking like eating disorders like you know the whole teams, whether that's like a dietitian or doctor or psychiatrist or whatever, mm-hmm. um, everyone provides something different. And I think that if you have that lived experience, that could be that different thing that you provide. So, um, I really appreciate being in an environment where I can use my discretion to, you know, share or not share given any situation. Um, I also think about too, like, and this is just my perspective on it. Um, but I think about the fact that, you know, when you're working with a client who's struggling or who's trying to work through recovery, um, something I'm really passionate about is empowering them to be authentic with their story and, um, you know, kind of try to pull back on that shame aspect. And for me, it feels a little bit contradicting when I don't share my story, if it's in a way of like, you know, keeping that piece aside because there is shame around it or something like that. Um, which of course, like we've mentioned, like there's times that, um, might not be appropriate or if you don't feel comfortable, that's different. Um, but yeah, if it's, I think it's helpful to kind of break that shame barrier down sometimes. Oh, 100% because nobody should ever feel shame for owning your story. So yeah. I, that is, such, that is so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's definitely a, yeah, great. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a complex topic and I can spend hours about this. I know me too. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's so, it's so cool how we're both kind of in like uh, grad school for going into a helping profession with our own lived experience. So I think it's really good. So what do you typically do on a day-to-day basis then like for your career um, for each job that you do? Yeah. Um, so my life is very hectic right now, um, <laughs> which I'm sure you're in grad school as well. You are probably well acquainted with that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So my day to day right now, I am also doing my clinical internship for school. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time at my internship site. Um, so there's that piece of my life. Right. And then, um, I, I'm working one to two days a week at the treatment clinic that I've had a more longstanding job with. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
there really is no rhyme or reason to like a specific day. Um, I've really learned to plan ahead, use my calendar, all of that. Yeah, kind of stuff. yeah for sure. Um, yeah. So it really, it depends on the given day, but typically there's a class or two for school. Um, and then I'll be at my internship or, uh, in our clinic for work, uh, just depending on what day of the week it is. And then I don't do, um, so the coaching I did at the high school previously, um, I'm not doing that currently. I'm coaching on more of a private basis, um, just because of timing. Um, so I do have a few coaching clients that I'll meet with in the evenings. Um, but that's kind of variable depending on, you know, my schedule with them specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then that's kind of the things that fit into the days. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm sure there's a lot more intricacies there, um, as yeah. in everybody's day-to-day life. But so for your athletes that you coach, do you coach in far as like a, like a physical sense, like running or sports, or do you coach them as like, you're an eating disorders coach for these athletes? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I was about to say it's pretty much always both to some extent. Um, if it's a client with, you know, eating disorder stuff going on. Um, so right now with my private coaching clients, um, it really depends. So the way I kind of structure my business with that is, um, when I first meet a client, it's, uh, up to them, whether they're looking for more of that, like sports science, um, like athletic coaching base, or if they're looking for more of that recovery coaching. Um, and then from there, we, chat more about, you know, if it's recovery coaching, are we looking at movement or are we looking at, um, maybe Mm -hmm. I guess that's super variable now that I start to see them talk about it, but, um, you know, are we incorporating movement really? Mm -hmm. And then for my sport clients, then we start talking about, okay, like what's your experience with like the psychology side of, um, sports or, you know, more of the physical side of sports and how do we want to integrate that? Where are your strengths? Where do you want to grow? Um, so really working to individualize it, but I'm pretty passionate about, um, holistic coaching. So you will get that with me regardless. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's, are you yeah. accepting new clients right now? Or are you kind of taking a break until grad school's over? Yeah, um, I am. So my schedule is pretty tight. So it's just a matter of like finding people yeah. who have matching availabilities. Um, but yeah, I am though, if we do find that availability match, yeah. Awesome. So yeah. if anybody listening right now is like, I really need Kayla as my coach, how could they <laughs> reach out to you or, uh, just talk about yeah. it with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I do have an Instagram, which is at Kayla divine coaching. And then, um, I also have a website, which is just Kayla divine.com. Um, so you can either reach out through my contact form on that website, um, DM me on Instagram. I'm pretty flexible. So, um, you know, any way to contact me through those two sources. Um, yeah, that'd be great. And I would love to connect with anybody. So definitely don't hesitate if you're interested. Yeah. You guys, if you're even thinking about it, (laughs) go reach out to her, go check out her website. Her website's awesome. So yes, definitely. Well, that's awesome to hear that you're accepting a couple new Mm -hmm. clients at least. And that's really great. I love the idea of holistic coaching because I truly believe that, you know, to tackle an eating disorder, um, or an athlete with an eating disorder, you can't just tackle the movement side of things or the, uh, food side of things. You really have to come at it from both approaches, because if you fix the food side of the thing, but the person is still 
addicted to movement or exercise, or they have an unhealthy relationship with exercise, it's just, it's still going to feed back into the food side of things. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it hits on that point where, um, eating disorders and disordered eating issues are so complex that you can't only focus on one thing and expect, um, you know, like full sustained recovery, right? So you have to really support all aspects. For sure. For sure. Especially mm-hmm. since we were talking about earlier, how like we all tend to be like high achievers, perfectionists. Yeah. So like, oh, okay. So maybe you're not engaging in eating disorder behaviors anymore, but now you're um, addicted to micromanaging your finances or something like yep. that. Is that unhealthy? <laughs> so it's such a hard like dimension to like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. We're all talking about like constructs and um, one of my classes right now, it's like, it's hard because one disorder or one problem has so many different outlets and constructs for it. And it's just, it's so hard to define what is normal and abnormal for certain disorders. And there's so many different branches and yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think is the most fulfilling thing and most challenging thing about working with uh, athletes and others who have eating disorders? Yeah. Um, I think the most fulfilling thing, um, I've always been somebody who loves just like hearing people's stories. Um, that always has been super interesting to me. And then when I think about the population of athletes and, um, people in recovery from an eating disorder, and then also that, you know, intersection with it, Mm -hmm. um, that is like an incredibly strong and resilient group of people. So hearing their stories is probably the most fulfilling thing. Um, it just gives me so much hope and motivation. Um, so that, that definitely takes the prize for the motivate or the fulfillment. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, challenging. I think the most challenging thing for me, and, um, th- this might also just be kind of with the client base that I have right now, but, um, there's so many systematic issues in, mental health is a larger entity, but definitely eating disorder treatment and then definitely eating disorder treatment for athletes. Right. Um, so I think, yeah, the systematic issues are the most challenging for me because, um, working on the ground directly with clients, you see the impacts of these larger systems. Um, and it's so hard to see the impacts and then also try to help them navigate, um, a system that, you know, isn't created for everybody. Um, so that's definitely the most challenging for me is just, you know, trying to work through that. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of big systematic things out there that are really, really, it's horrendous to see it's impactful on people. Um, absolutely. What are some of the most common things that you've seen, I guess, that have impacted people? I guess those, uh, just a couple of those systems that you've really noticed. Yeah. Um, think it kind of depends on the setting that we're talking about too. Um, if I'm thinking about like the athlete side of it, um, or like athlete and mental health side of it, yeah, I think it's, um, often that mental health issues and eating disorders can go unnoticed in athletes because some of those, um, symptoms of eating disorders and some other mental health, um, concerns, right. That obviously all come together um, they're praised in the athletic world. Right. So they end up going unnoticed. So when I think about like, you know, 
these phrases like determination or will, or, um, you know, really good at like Mm -hmm. control and all these things. Um, sure. They can benefit people in sports to some extent, but I also think that if we're not looking at it carefully, um, and not looking at the person holistically, we're missing a lot of things they might be struggling with and we're not really doing them, um, the best we could, I guess. Um, yeah. So I think some of the kind of intersections of mental health and sports systems together create a barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I think about like maybe the eating disorder side, um, more broadly and not talking about the athlete population specifically, um, it's definitely just like the access to care. Um, there's so many issues with insurance. And then I also think about issues in terms of like the way we conceptualize eating disorders, but often don't bring in the cultural aspects. Right. So there's, um, a huge gap in the terms of representation in eating disorders and then how that filters into access to treatment. Um, that's a big one too. Absolutely. Those are some of the biggest system errors that are so problematic right now. And just like, it always has been. And especially, yeah, especially with eating disorders, especially since they're so, I guess, culturized and there's such like a stigma around what causes an eating disorder, what somebody who has an eating disorder looks like, what they're struggling with. Like it, they're so diverse and there's, and like these systems are failing to recognize that like there's more variation within the people who have eating disorders than between those who have eating disorders and those who don't have eating disorders, if that makes sense. But it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's so hard. So yeah, definitely. Oh man. So going off of that, I guess, have you noticed any trends, I guess, as far as like eating disorder behaviors or, um, disorder, I don't know, disordered eat like exercise recently, ever since like COVID or because of the media or TikTok or what have you noticed, I guess, as far as eating disorder trends in the past, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, there's so many. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah. When I think about like the COVID aspect of it, right. Like, I think that's definitely played a role for people. Um, and that can be anything from, you know, I think, especially towards the beginning of COVID, there was a big push in the media, um, at least from what I was seeing to like, use your time effectively while you were, you know, staying at home. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or some pretty significant pressures to like stay fit or not, you know, gain weight or like all these things during COVID, um, which I think, yeah, the media kind of monopolized on that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, beginning of the pandemic, which, and created a lot of, um, new disordered eating and body image and everything in between, um, for people. And then I also think about just media as a larger or more general thing. Um, I think that's been really challenging because, and I don't know, so I don't know if this is a shift because of the people I specifically follow, but I tend to see more of that mental health eating disorder stuff on, um, media. So that might also be just curated to me to some extent. Um, (laughs) yeah, but I think to some extent too, like Mm -hmm. it's very, um, like idealized or romanticized on social media. Um, and this is not everybody, of course, there's lots of people out there that are doing awesome work and being, um, realistic and showing what it's actually like. Um, 
but something I talk about with clients a lot is, um, from the eating disorder aspect, like recovery is not what it might look like on TikTok, right? <laughs> um, as much as we do have those days where it's, um, fun because we got to go try a fear food with the sunrise in the background and had all these friends around us and whatever, like those things definitely happen for people. Um, so I don't want to discredit that at all. Um, but that's not all of it, right? There's a lot of really hard, really painful moments, um, that I think aren't always shown or they aren't shown as much, um, which I think just furthers the struggle. Right. So I think that just kind of continues the trends that were already happening, um, maybe more intensely though. Exactly. Exactly. Um, no, that is so, so true, especially in like, yeah, like the people who are posting like what I eat in a day is in recovery. And it's like, yes, you might see that they seem to be happy when they're eating this meal on the camera, but like, you don't see between the meals, between the snacks Mm -hmm. and how they're struggling with that. And so you see all this and they're like, oh, I love it. I tried some new things today, but it's like, what's happening between that? That can be effective. So yeah, definitely. So, um, what would you say the biggest advice is to, your clients or athletes, um, who are struggling that you want them to know about recovery. Um, what's something? Yeah. Um, I think this actually builds really well off of kind of that topic of social media we were just talking about. Um, I think the biggest thing I would want them to know is that, you know, a lot of times our picture of recovery, whether that's, um, maybe what you've heard from other people or whether it's what you see online, um, like it's not, there's no perfect way to recover. There's no right way to recover. Um, your story is going to look really different. Like no matter how similar, um, you might be to somebody else who's struggled or is, or who has, or is struggling, um, recovery is going to look different. So I think my biggest advice would just be to like, give yourself some grace around recovery. Um, you know, there's going to be great moments and you might recover, I've had clients say, you know, like, I feel like I'm recovering too fast. And it's like, maybe that's just your story, you know, maybe that like, that's your pace. And some other people are like, you know, I'm failing at recovery because it's slower or I don't have these same experiences. Um, and again, it's, you know, that's your highly unique individualized story. Um, so I would just say, yeah, have grace for yourself and have compassion for yourself and know that, your story is different. Recovery is going to look different because of that. And there's nothing wrong with it. Um, yeah, I think that would probably be the biggest piece of advice I'd give. Yes. I love that. I love that so much because it's so true. I mean, everybody has a different path of recovery and different way. I mean, nobody's the same and we can't be looking at these people who are on social media and maybe comparing yourself to say, oh, they're struggling more than me. So their struggles more valid than me, or they're not as struggling as much as me. Um, and I feel guilty for that. And so there's so many like n- unnecessary feelings that accompany yeah. comparing ourselves. Like there are some people who their story is they woke up one day and they were like, I'm done with this. And they were good. Their eating disorder behaviors were like gone. Then there's some people's whose story where they've been in recovery for 10, 20 plus years. And they've gone to treatment a few times and they're still working through it every day, but every day there's like a smaller win and there's setbacks, but it's like, there's exactly, there's no one right way to recover. So I love that. Definitely. Great advice. (laughs) 
So since you are such a huge proponent of both movement and recovery, um, and you do work with athletes who have eating disorders, how do you see movement fitting into recovery? Do you think people should be exercising when recovering from an eating disorder? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really, really hard question. Um, I think it totally depends. Uh, I think there's a lot of different, different factors. Wow. I'm struggling to talk. Um, (laughs) there's a lot of different factors that go into it. Right. So some of the ones that like come off the top of my head are like, you know, was moving a part of their eating disorder. Um, were they a mover beforehand? Um, or did movement kind of develop through their struggle? Um, I think about what the purpose of movement is for them. Is it, yeah, is it part of that eating disorder or is it, um, more rooted in joy. And I also think about maybe more of the, um, I don't know if logistic is the right word, but I think about medical stability and the impacts of any sort of, um, nutritional imbalances. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, of course you want to be able to work with, um, doctors and dietitians and that kind of, um, provider to make sure that it's safe for you to move. Um, and then, yeah, trying to figure out, whether that movement is helpful, helpful, harmful, or neutral in your recovery. Um, and then kind of going from there and deciding, you know, if, and when it's appropriate to be a part of that recovery story. Um, yeah. So I think it's highly dependent on the person and their story. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, I think you hit it right on the, right on the nail right there, just because there's so many, I mean, We, again, going back to the comparison thing, there's a lot of people who do move throughout recovery because either they are exercising for the right reasons or, I mean, quote unquote, right, Um, (laughs) for a maladaptive purpose. And then there's um, others who are completely sedentary in their recovery and they can't move at all. um, And they compare themselves to that. And they say, well, this person's moving. So why shouldn't I, or vice versa? And so I do think that goes back to that whole, like, there's no right way to recover, but um, yeah, definitely. I think it's yet yeah, both a medical thing and also like purpose, I guess. So yeah. yeah. What, like what helped you, I guess, as an athlete going through recovery and what helped you cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise? And what do you, what do you work on with your clients right now who might be struggling with, um, a poor relationship with exercise? Yeah. Um, you know, I think at the root of it, the goal for me or from my perspective, if I'm in that coach role, um, is really just to get a client to a space where movement is coming from a place of joy and fulfillment. Right. Um, so that was kind of similar to where I ended up being, um, whether I realized that in the process or not is a different question, (laughs) but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think kind of having a guiding question like that, like, am I moving today because I'm feeling fulfilled by it and I'm getting joy out of it? Um, I think constantly asking that of yourself is really helpful. Um, and then pairing that with this unconditional permission to move or to not move, depending on how you feel. Um, I think those things go hand in hand. And then I also think that you know, working on your relationship with movement is 
inseparable from working on your relationship with self-trust. So I don't think that you're able to have that healthy relationship with movement if you don't have self-trust because you need that permission from yourself, right? Nobody can tell you, I mean, they can, but (laughs) um, is it really as impactful if somebody else tells you whether you can or can't do something versus whether you full-heartedly believe that for yourself? Um, Yeah. So I think just realizing that your relationship with exercise, um, so much deeper than just whether, you know, you go for a run or you go to the gym or whatever, um, is your choice of movement. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or whether you don't like, it's so much more than that. It's definitely whether you trust yourself to make that decision, um, in a way that's honoring your well-being. Um, and yeah, and just remembering that, you know, what is the purpose of your movement? Um, those are kind of the big questions that I think are helpful to guide healing that relationship. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's fantastic. I think it really does come down to that whole self-trust thing. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that's super important. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Cause there's so many benefits of exercise, but there's also a lot of harm that can be done if exercise is done healthfully. So yeah. and- physically. So yeah, great, great words of wisdom. (laughs) Um, so what would you say, I guess your future goals are with your career and, um, with your life, I guess, sports. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I definitely feel strongly about wanting to stay in the eating disorder field. Um, it's one of my primary passions in life, um, really gets me going every day. So that's something I plan to continue. And hopefully, you know, as I finish up school next summer and then, um, move into, uh, getting my first job post-grad school, um, I'd love to be working as a therapist in some eating disorder setting, right. We'll see where that exactly is. Um, (laughs) and then, um, I definitely want to keep coaching. I see myself coaching, um, you know, both eating disorder and also that sport piece of it. I see myself doing that, you know, forever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I love working with athletes. So I definitely want to keep that incorporated. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. You're going to be such an amazing therapist. And when you (laughs) finish, I mean, you're already helping so many, but it's like, when you finish grad school, you're just going to be amazing. Thank you. Uh, Of course. That's it's yeah. Again, it's just so beautiful how you're using your story and stuff. So thank you. Yeah. What would you say that, what is a piece of, you kind of touched on like what advice you give to people who are struggling, um, with disordered eating or exercise. And again, you know, there's no one right way to recover, but what would you say to those people who are maybe like scared to reach out for help? Yeah. Um, and that's a big one too. Cause I remember like, that was a big part of my story, um, was feeling like, how do I reach out for help? Should I, um, yeah, like what happens when I do and mm-hmm. all those pieces. Um, and you know, <laughs> me right now, kind of like on the other side and all that, like I want to just be like, do it. It's worth it. Um, but I also know that there's so many barriers and that's not always realistic. Um, so I would say like take baby steps towards reaching out. Right. So you don't have to go, um, you know, full force today about it. Um, but maybe that just means finding a friend you trust and saying like, Hey, I'm thinking about reaching out. And then maybe that's your step. 
Um, and then tomorrow it could be, you know, looking up treatment options online and you don't have to do anything, but just look them up. Right. And like finding these ways to start dipping your toe in, um, that kind of recovery space, mm-hmm. I think that easing in, um, you know, given that you're in a position where that makes sense for you. Um, I think that can be helpful. I think that if you have those people around you, um, for accountability and support, leaning on them is really great. Um, and I also think a big fear, um, for me at least was that I was going to, you know, reach out for help and like lose all these other pieces of my life that I enjoyed. So, um, for me, like thinking about Mm -hmm. sport and like, you know, I had that big question, like if I, you know, try to get care, um, am I going to have my sport taken away from me? Right. Which I think is a pretty common worry for a lot of athletes. Um, and now reflecting on it, you know, there've been definitely like, um, moments where I've been more engaged in movement and I've been, um, not moving at all in my recovery and both were equally hard. But when I think about it now, my movement is so much more joyful than it was when I was in my eating disorder. So I think about like, you know, it is hard to think about that. There is a possibility that you aren't moving for a little bit. Um, yeah, but the end result could be so much more beautiful and you could have so much more joy in that thing that you already like. So, yeah. Yeah. Kind of thinking like long-term, what do you want with, um, your sport or just your life in general? And, you know, that might mean taking a risk now. Um, but you know, maybe taking that risk will be worth it. (laughs) Absolutely. And like, that's the thing is movement is always going to be there for us, like no matter what. And you really do have to break down that movement barrier sometimes in order to build it back up because it's a hard neural pathway to break, especially when your brain's so used to it. Um, but I, like, I took two years off of movement and it was the best thing I've ever done because now I'm like, I've never been so happy moving. So it's like, it's very, yeah, great advice. Well, you really shared a lot of great words of wisdom today. Um, and again, um, I gave her to read her contact information to reach out. If any of you want to get connected with Kayla, because she's a really seems like a really great coach and just you're so passionate about what you do. And I love that. Um, yeah. so yeah, well, I have a couple of fun closing questions that I ask all my guests, but what is your morning routine and your go-to breakfast food? Yeah. Um, so I'm a big morning person. I love early mornings. Um, so this is the perfect question. I know a lot of people would probably be like, I just want to sleep. Um, but I'm up early. So <laughs> Me too. I love it. Yeah. So I, um, let's see. So yeah, I get, get up in the morning, um, do all the, you know, taking the dog out more of the, you know, need to do's in the morning. Um, which my dog is also like my best friend. So, I mean, I guess it's not really a need to do it's, it's a fun thing, but, um, yeah, get up, take the dog out, definitely get some coffee in me, get some food in me. (laughs) Um, And then I have really been enjoying um, running in the morning lately. I was just talking to a friend about this and I just love like how calm and peaceful mornings are because so many people aren't up yet. Um, that running in the morning, um, just like getting the sunrise and it's so quiet and all that. That's really nice, Mm -hmm. especially in jobs where you're working with people all day. It's, it's good to have that like quiet time. 
Yes. Um, yeah. So do that a lot of times. And then, um, always have to grab a pastry on my way into work. I have this favorite bakery of mine, so I always stop by it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty typical weekday morning for me. Um, weekends are a lot more variable, probably get a little more sleeping in then. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I love that. I am also a morning runner. Like I, this is just the best way to start my day. Cause you're like you, oh my gosh, that's so true. Like the entire world is like asleep and it's like your only time to just like connect with yourself and with the environment around you. And I, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have a question for you. Podcast music or nothing when you're running. Oh, good question. You know, it really depends on my mood. When yeah. I'm like when I'm like racing, um, I usually yeah. don't if it's like a short race, I like don't listen to anything. Um, yeah. I don't I just have to like be in the zone. Um, mm-hmm. if it's a long race, I'll listen to music. But if I'm like needing to like feel a little bit more hype that day, I'll, I'll listen to some music. But yeah. if it's like a chill, like I need to keep myself like at a very slow pace, I'll listen to a podcast for sure. Got it. <laughs> what about Got you? It. Um, yeah, it also depends for me. Yeah. It kind of depends too, like what I have going later uh-huh. in the day. So like, if it's like going to be a slower morning, I, mm-hmm. I like to listen to either a podcast or some more like chill music. Yeah. Um, but if there's something coming up that like, I'm nervous about, I'll definitely listen to some like hype music, like get myself worked up a little bit. <laughs> exactly. It's literally like how I get out of my anxiety. It's like the yeah. music and the running. It's, yeah, yeah, no, the music choice makes all the difference. <laughs> oh, 100%. What type of music do you listen to when you run? When you run? Oh, it totally depends. I typically I'll like find a song and then just go to like that radio, you know? Yes, that's yeah. what I do too. Yeah. So. Oh, that's anyways. Awesome. No, that's a great, though. No, that's a great question, actually. If any of you made it to the end of this podcast, um, comment on my promo picture for this, what you listen to when you run, if you run, and if you listen to anything. Yeah, I, I will be checking that out because I want to see everyone's responses. Right? I'll, I should, like, create a poll. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again, Kayla, for coming on today. And again, please reach out to her if any of you want to get connected because, like I said, she's an amazing coach and super passionate and awesome. So thank you again. Yes. Thank you. It was so good to connect. Yeah, you too. <laughs>